Welcome to Wine Splaining, the podcast that peels back the journeys of the women shaping the wine and sake business. I'm Coley Denhon, and I'm excited to present today's guest, Courtney Kaplan. Speaking to Courtney, the owner of not one, but two of my favorite Los Angeles establishments, Subaki and Atoto. I can say firsthand running a restaurant is far from a breeze and not for the faint of heart, but it's no mistake why Courtney's spots are so good. She's not only worked in multiple facets of the hospitality industry at the hottest places on both our coasts, but also spent time studying in Japan. She's a sommelier fluent in Japanese, and has become this city's honorary sake go-to guru. Her and her partner have what seemed to be the perfect back-of-the-house, front-of-the-house synergy, and her unpretentious style of sharing her wealth of knowledge immediately pulls you in. I'm personally really excited to learn more about her life and how she got so dang cool. Welcome, Courtney Kaplan, to Wine Splaining. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> so... Let's dig right in, because there's a lot I want to talk about. But uh, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up on Long Island, uh, about an hour or so outside of New York City, and lived there all the way through till I left for college. Where'd you go to college? And I went to college in Manhattan. I went to Columbia. Um, So not too far, but obviously very different, uh, different experience. So when you were growing up, uh, did you have any dreams of what you wanted to be? You know, I don't, I think back on it and I don't have anything that comes to mind. I always loved reading and writing, so I think I thought something maybe that involved creative skills in that way. Um, But I was pretty lost, I would say, when I went to to school, when I left for college. Um, Didn't really know what I wanted to do um, and kind of was sort of stumbling around through lots of different things through my young adulthood, I would say. Not not a real clear plan (laughs) from the beginning. What did you start studying? I mean, where did you just begin? Well, the nice thing about Columbia is there's uh, the first two years, you're basically just taking required classes. So it's a lot of, it's exposure to lots and lots of different things, which was really helpful for me because I didn't have to make a lot of choices. Um, And I decided partway through, I wanted to study U.S. history. Um, So I was focusing with a major in U.S. history with a focus on Reconstruction era um, politics and sort of that period of time. And midway through my junior year, I was just getting really burnt out and decided I wanted to take a bunch of language classes because I wouldn't have to write any term papers. I was like, if I take language, there's not like a ton of work I have to do. I'm sort of revealing myself as like a, the lazy student I am. Um, ended up taking a Japanese class and just got kind of hooked on it. Um, the, the language just kind of clicked for me. And um, I found it really interesting. I had knew, knew nothing about Japan, had never been there before, but something through the language like really opened up a, a door for me. Yeah, that's interesting. So was it kind of just like a eeny, meeny, miny, mo, like all the languages? It was Japanese? It was really random. Um, there was a guy who I was friendly with who used to bring me Japanese fashion magazines. They did a lot of like street style, and I always really loved the clothes. And I was like, oh, it'd be cool if I was able to read these magazines and not just look at the pictures. But it was really just kind of random. Like, I I wish I could say there was more thought that went into it, but it was just like, oh, this seems kind of fun. Um but it was it was a lucky guess. And I mean, 
I do not speak other languages, unfortunately, but I would imagine Japanese is one of the harder ones. You know, it's 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 not easy. I don't think learning any language is easy necessarily, but it's um, the 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 spoken part. I found I kind of took to it fairly quickly. Um, reading and writing is a different story, but the the spoken language, in some ways, the grammar is so much more simple than English grammar. Um, without getting too in the weeds on the language, but I I, I don't know. I just found that like it just kind of um, it wasn't a huge amount of effort to kind of at least get started with it for me. I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else. It's <laughs> interesting. So you're in college. You're studying Japanese. Is this something like that was like really pivotal for you and that you really wanted to focus on or this was just a side thing? It was just a side thing. And then I, I was sort of, you know, still feeling a lot of burnout. Um, and I realized I had lived in New York my whole life. I hadn't really ever been anywhere. I had never left the country outside of going to like Canada maybe once as a kid. So I thought maybe I should study abroad. Um, and I was like, well, I've been studying Japanese. Why don't I try to go to Japan? Um not really thinking much of it, more like I just kind of need to get out of New York for a little while. And that was um, what took me there. And that, that, I would say, was the pivotal pivotal moment for me, was making that decision and that experience. Where in Japan did you go? I went to Tokyo, um, and I really lucked out. Um, I opted to do a homestay program where you stay with a family. Um, and a lot of my fellow exchange students were staying with families who were quite far out in the suburbs um, where, you know, you have to take a long train to get to school. Uh, school was in, in pretty a pretty central part of Tokyo. Um, but I lucked out with, uh, ended up staying with a young woman. Her She lived on her own. She was in her early 20s and she had an apartment in like the, one of the nicest areas in central Tokyo. So I could like bike everywhere and I could, like I didn't have to worry about taking trains and I could really, I was able to get a part-time job. Um, I wasn't, didn't have to like be home for dinner like a lot of other, of the, you know, a lot of other students did. So I had a lot of freedom. It was almost like living there and going to school as opposed to sort of being in an exchange program, which was just, was sheer luck. Um, but it allowed me to really kind of have a bit more of a life there than I think I would have otherwise. How old were you at this time? I was, I must have been 19-ish. Oh, wow. Yeah, around that age. Can you drink when you're 19 in Japan? You can't. Oh, no, like, drinking age is 20. Um, I don't remember ever getting asked about it. I wasn't drinking a ton either. I did have a job. I worked in a restaurant. Um, so we would have, like, a shift drink at the end of the night. Um and we would go out with friends, like go to Izakai and go drinking, but um, it wasn't like a huge p- part of my life there. I wasn't drinking a bunch of sake, that's for sure. No, um, no we were drinking like chuhai, like cock- cheap, you know, shochu cocktails and beer and just like whatever, you know, kind of kids were drinking. <laughs> okay, so you're there for a year and there's a time that you need to go back to New York. Yeah, so I need to go back to New York and finish school. And when I got back, um, my main concern was really I didn't want to lose the language. I felt like, you know... There's a cliche like if you don't use it, you lose it. But I do think that's really true. And I was like, I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to be speaking Japanese in my day-to-day life in New York unless I f- figure something out. So there's a sake bar in the East Village that I had been to with friends, you know, prior to going to Japan. And it had always been always thought it was super fun and seemed like a cool place to be. So I just kind of called them up randomly and was like, are you hiring? Would you ever consider hiring someone, you know, who's not Japanese and who doesn't know anything about sake? And the manager at the time was like, why don't you just come down for an interview and let's like talk about this. Um, and it was um, the weirdest interview process <laughs> I've ever experienced. Basically, they're like, just sit at the bar at 
the first seat at the bar next to where the manager's working and just kind of hang out and drink and talk. And the questions were like, what kind of music do you like? What do you enjoy? It was very like, are you going to fit in here with this group of people? And not like, are you going to be good at bartending, basically? (laughs) But like, you know, are you like... Are you personable? Are you, you know, are you going to fit in, basically, I think was kind of what they were looking for. And I sat there for quite a long time. I knew nothing about sake, so they were just pouring me whatever they recommended um, and ended up hiring me randomly um, <laughs> with no experience uh, at whatsoever in, in the beverage industry. So you basically fell into hospitality because you wanted to keep speaking Japanese. It, exactly that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing. There was no... I had worked at a diner in high school. I would waited tables, but there was like no... I never thought this was where I was going to end up. That's for sure. That's so interesting. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people in the hospitality industry find their ways there in in a very roundabout way. (laughs) I would agree. (laughs) This is the first time I've heard somebody just wanting to continue speaking a language. So That's cool. So, okay, you're at this um, cool New York sake bar. Uh, You're starting to learn about sake. Yeah, it was... um the bar is called Decibel. It's still there. It's um, it's an institution. It's been around for, I want to say, I was working there in the early 2000s, but I think it has been around since the early 90s. Um, and there's, when I was there, I want to say 40, 50 sake by the glass, um, open till four in the morning. And then at, at four, after we would finish, we kind of would just sit around and drink sake and eat snacks and, you know, whatever was left over from family meal and hang out. But because everything was open and we were kind of able to just drink and taste everything. I mean, I'm going to put air quotes around taste. (laughs) Um, There was a lot of just hanging out and drinking sake. But um, it was just like really the crash course um, in in the beverage. I, you know, I was lucky to work with some coworkers who were super knowledgeable and always really generous with their education with me. Um, I think they thought it was kind of funny. Like here's this like white girl who's like learning about sake. Like I think there was like a novelty appeal of it. And I think um, we just all became friends too, you know. Um, But I really learned a lot in a very casual way. There was no formal education. Like there was no sake training when I started. It was like here, taste a couple, pick which ones you like and you you can recommend those. Um, And I really just kind of learned about it you know, in this really kind of fun, easy way um, and where I didn't even realize I was learning anything about sake. Um, But it was, uh, when I look back on it, I really think that that kind of helped shape how I think about, like how I think about education today and how I try to communicate about sake as well, like keeping it fun, not too stressful, not too formal, um, because probably that's the only way I know at this point. Was everybody working there Japanese or...? There was one other American guy when I started, um, but other than that, yeah, everybody else was Japanese. So it really was like my life was conducted almost entirely in Japanese at that point because um, I was working. I would work four, night, four to five nights a week. You know, obviously I'm speaking with or talking with the guests. I'm speaking in English, but my work life was really was and my social life, too, because that's who I was hanging out with. Because who else am I going to hang out with when I get off work at four in the morning um, was really conducted almost entirely in Japanese, which was you know, really great. I achieved the goal of being able to practice my language, that's for sure. <laughs> Were you still in college at this point? or I did work there through my last semester, which was a lot because geographically, you know, I was in college all the way uptown and then would have to take the train to the East Village and then getting off work at four or five in the morning and then taking the train back. It was not the best lifestyle for a student. Um, and then when I graduated, I had to kind of make a choice. Did I want to stay there and continue bartending and serving or did I want to kind of look for, you know, a, 
a real job, I guess, as probably <laughs> my, my family would have uh, phrased it at that point. Um, but I did make the decision to keep working there, basically just because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. It wasn't an active decision, like, I want to stay in hospitality. I don't think I even thought about it as hospitality at that point. You know, I, it was... Um, First of all, a different time when I think restaurant work was thought of a little bit differently. And also I was just really so young. Um, but I thought like, hey, this is a good job for like in the meantime, basically, while I figure stuff out. And it was just really fun. I think that was a big part of the appeal. Okay. So what did you major in? What did you graduate with? Like what kind of a job would you have got if you made that decision? Well, I graduated. I never got the major in U.S. history because I ended up shifting gears, but I ended up with a minor, so no major. Um, but I had also been working another part-time job at the Met, at the museum. Um, in the They have a library there where they do, like, restoration of old books, which was really fascinating to me as well. And they offered me a job coming out of college if I wanted to stay and work in this kind of in this uh, museum position. So I was that was what I was sort of torn between. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. I think I was just young and wanted to have fun. I was like, this seems like a lot more fun to keep bartending. I do sometimes wonder because that job was also like was very cool and really fascinating. And I always wonder, like we were learning how to like do hand book binding and like restore these like ancient. It was it was cool. But um, at that moment in time, I didn't see myself like in a museum basement. I was sort of wanted to I was working in a bar in a basement instead. But uh, that felt like um, I don't know. I made a choice just based on what I thought would be more fun. I hear you. I, mean, <laughs> I pretty much bartended my entire 20s, and it was a lot of fun. We yeah. had a lot of fun. And you learn a lot about people. Like, I look back, I'm like, I learned so much there. You know, I think mm-hmm. there's, um, unfortunately, still some uh, jobs, you know, jobs in hospitality are often looked at as careers, um, unfortunately, whereas, I, and I think that's really, you know, too bad, because you learn a lot. I think learning to work with the public is huge. And, you know, I think about, I would never be doing my job now if I hadn't had that experience. So, you know, even though my decision wasn't like, I'm going to do this for my career, it ended up, you know, being a huge, a huge bonus. Yeah. I'd be happy if every person in the world had to work at a restaurant <laughs> at one point in their life. <laughs> they would be a lot nicer probably yeah. to it's restaurant good. workers. It's good to see the other side for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're at Decibel, you're in your 20s, you know, you're having fun. Where where do you go from here? So from there, that I sort of had a little life crisis. I, again, I was like, you know what, I can't do this forever. This is not sustainable. I can't be, really the hours were hard. I was like, this is not a, you know, the lifestyle was hard. Um, as I was getting, you know, older, I thought I was so old in my mid-20s. Um, <laughs> so I was like, well, I should I should do something, you know, I should get a nine to five. So I ended up getting a job working for a Japanese newspaper called Nihon Keizai Shimbun um, in New York doing kind of admin stuff. I did like some translations like their um, correspondents were all from Japan. So I would help, you know, do interpreting and translating work for them, help run their schedules. It wasn't journalism. It was more sort of like admin stuff that used the language. Um, and I was there for a couple of years. It was a really fascinating job, I think, like it's really interesting to see um, both like kind of the world of journalism and also like what it looks like from, you know, from another country. Like even though it was in New York, it was a, a Japanese company. Um, but I realized pretty quickly that that nine to five lifestyle was just not for me. Um, just uh, it was interesting, but not fulfilling, I guess, is probably where I landed. And I was thinking, like, do I want to keep doing this? Like where? Where do I go from here? And kind of right at that moment, one of my old coworkers from the sake bar 
approached me to say that he was helping to open a Japanese restaurant with um, kind of a mutual acquaintance of ours. And did I want to come be part of the team? And I said, yes. I thought like, you know, I'm not really happy doing this newspaper work. What's the harm? Like I'm going to go, you know, try to help open this restaurant and then kind of see where that takes me. Um, So ended up right back in it. There was kind of a brief, I want to say I was out of restaurants for about a year and a half to two years and then got sucked back in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so you're opening this Japanese restaurant with your friend. What was your role? So I was hired originally um, almost like a cultural liaison, I want to say. it's a The restaurant's called N Japanese Brasserie is the name of the New York branch, but it's at the time it was part of a very large group of restaurants uh, based in Tokyo. Um, they were going to open their first U.S. location, and the all of the chefs were coming from Japan, none of whom spoke any English. So I was sort of brought on to help them navigate getting settled into New York. So helping them find apartments, like kind of getting them set up with a cell phone, like kind of doing logistical stuff for them that mm-hmm. required a translator. Um, and then helping like, you know, translate the menus, do all of the, you know, write out the menu descriptions for the staff, like help with training, kind of do a lot of things that were sort of at this intersection of, I would say, language and hospitality. Mm. Um, Everyone else on the management team, everyone who hadn't come from Japan, they were all based here and they all spoke English, but they were all, English wasn't a native language for anyone else. So they kind of used me as like a way to make sure, you know, to talk to the press if the press had questions and like do, you know, sort of be the English speaker um, who also understood the Japanese side of things. Um, That was kind of pre-opening. And then once we opened, I was working as a server and then ended up doing events for them, like helping book event rooms. I wasn't doing anything beverage related until about a year, a couple of years in when our, the manager who had been handling the wine list left and they sort of looked around and they were like, do you know anything about wine? And I was like, sure. I didn't know anything about wine. Um, <laughs> I, I did like to drink it. We would, I would go out and drink wine and I thought I knew something, but I knew nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were like, just do the list. So I worked in, in kind of tandem with, um, someone who I think of as a mentor, my friend Taka, who was doing the sake program. And he was like, let's just do it together. So we would taste together, picked the randomest things um, (laughs) and wrote this very, very weird wine list. Um, But it sort of sparked an interest in me of like, oh, there's like more to this, I think. Like, I think I had never, I would go out and order a bottle of wine or have something by the glass. But I think I was like, oh, this is like really interesting as well. Um, And it felt so different from sake. Like sake was sort of more like just everywhere in my life. And almost to like, it was just kind of background almost. And wine was like, oh, I actually really want to learn. I need to make an effort to learn about this. So that sort of took me in a completely different direction. I think I had taken sake for granted and wine was like, oh, I'm going to like pay attention and start to study this. Um, Yeah, I feel like A, most entrepreneurs have this kind of fake it until you make it moment (laughs) of, you know, yeah, I can do that. I got this. (laughs) Uh, That's a through line in most of my conversations. And yeah, I mean, I fell into wine too, where I like, I thought I understood it. But as soon as I started like learning about it, I was like, whoa, it's super cool. And I know nothing. Yeah. I feel like that's part of the journey too. It's like when you first start out and you know a little bit and you don't know how much you don't know, you're like, yeah, sure. I, I know about wine. And then it's like, then you realize like, oh, the more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know, I think. Um, yeah. <laughs> I still know nothing. I mean, I still think about it. I'm like, I tell my staff, I'm like, you know, you have to be a student for life with stuff like this. You really do. Yeah. Yeah. And then you meet people. I had a talk with Isabel from Raw mm-hmm. and who's a master of wine. And it's like, 
oh yeah, you know about why. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, what's a Somali ad? I know. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I hear you. Mind-splaining. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you're doing the wine list. Um, so that's becoming, you know, more of an interest. Is this when you decide that you do want to become a sommelier? Or? Yeah, I mean, I, I started taking some wine classes um, and just, you know, just interested in learning about it, kind of self-studying. And I had been at that point, I think at that point it was when I was like, I think that I want to do something in food and beverage as a career. I think that was when I sort of saw that there was possibly a path forward. I think up until then I wasn't sure what that path would look like. I was, you know, I liked serving, but I was like, I don't know if I can do this forever. This was also, you know, there's no health insurance. I was like, there's no stability. Um, I need something, you know, as I'm getting older, I was sort of starting to think like, what am I going to do with this? And I think wine was a... The first time I saw, like, oh, there is a career possibility here. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever imagined that there would be a career in sake, to be honest. Like, even in New York at that time, there were so few positions available. But wine, I was like, well, everybody drinks wine, all out of all, you know. So, yeah, I started studying, and then I decided I should um, maybe work somewhere that wasn't Japanese. Like, I, my experience up to that point had been all in Japanese food and beverage establishments, and only working with Japanese people who I, I learned so much from, but I'm like, maybe I should see like how other kinds of restaurants are run. Cause obviously they're run differently. There's lots, you know? Um, so I ended up working very briefly at Del Posto, which was an Italian restaurant um, owned by Mario Batali in the meatpacking district. That was like very high end, very aspirational. I was a server there, but there was quite a bit of education. Um, and it was, um, not the right fit for me. I learned a lot in my time there, but it was, I would say it was not the right place for me. Uh, And then I ended up taking a management job at Tribeca Grill, which is very old restaurant in Tribeca that I think has one of the most underrated gems of a wine list in the city. They have, it's very classic, um, but they have incredibly deep cellar and they host lots and lots of wine dinners and wine tastings. So it's, you know, it's not often thought of as a very cutting edge restaurant because, you know, it's been it's kind of an institution. But as a place to get wine education, I think it was really um, a good place for me to land. They host lots of big portfolio tastings there that we were always exposed to. There's always old stuff, old Burgundy open and just like lots of stuff kind of kicking around and lots of um, opportunity to be exposed to wine and to learn about it. Um, We were able to purchase stuff off of the list, which was great too. So I was able to buy a lot of bottles and take them home and do some self-study and also learn management from one of the most structured restaurants I had ever been at. I mean, it was very... um, I'm not a systems person by nature, but that restaurant was run on systems as I think a lot of kind of bigger established places are. So it was very good for me to get exposed to that. I had been sort of used to scrappy, like mom and pop style. Everyone wears a million hats, like kind of everyone has to be do everything. And this was a place where it was very structured um, and very run in a really organized way, which was very interesting for me to see. Oh, systems. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I still don't love them, but <laughs> me I either. try. <laughs> it's hard, but they are effective. Yes. <laughs> okay, so how long were you there for? I was there 
maybe two years or so, two around two years. I was like an assistant manager, floor manager. Yeah, as a floor as a floor manager. So you weren't doing the wine list there or anything. Not involved in the wine program. Um, there were there would be times, you know, there was a wine director, and then there would be psalm on the floor. But it was sort of like if the psalm was busy, we were able to step in. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't have the knowledge of the wine list like the sommeliers did. You know, they knew it inside and out. Um, Mm -hmm. But I could, you know, do kind of answer easy questions. Um, And it was just a good opportunity. It sounds silly, but just to touch a lot of bottles, like even just doing inventory every month, which was like a six person operation, like just to kind of be exposed to it and like you know learn kind of what are these classics I think like Mm -hmm. what are these kind of benchmark wines um which is very much how my wine education I think was shaped was really on like kind of classics um most European classics I would say um at this point this is 2010 I guess I was there in like the late I was there I want to say no this is before that (laughs) I don't remember (laughs) (laughs) but at some point so my partner Charles who um we had met working at this Japanese restaurant. He in the interim. Wait, back up, back up. Okay. <laughs> we met in New York. Um, Which restaurant? At was, N. At N. Okay. It was his first line cook job um, was working there. He had just moved from L.A. He was, I think, 21. Um, so we had met working there and ended up getting together at some point while we were both working there. Okay. And he had decided he's his family is from Japan. He's Japanese American, so he's cooking Japanese food. And then he really wanted to learn how to cook French cuisine. That was kind of always his interest. He was reading all these French cookbooks. Um, so he left there to go work at this restaurant called Chantrelle, which was um, very um, old French restaurant in Tribeca. Um, had been around since the seventies. Uh, the chef David Waltock is still, I think, inspiration to him. So he was cooking French food um, for quite a while, and then I was working at Tribeca Grill while he was there. We were like around the corner from each other. It was very funny. Um, at this point, were you guys just like in love and living together, and like <laughs> we were living together? <laughs> uh, we moved in by necessity, which I think is a New York story. But basically, <laughs> like we can't afford the rent. Maybe we should move in. Um, but yes, we have been together f- at that point. We got together in two thousand and four, so we had been together for a few years at that point. Okay. We've been together forever, um, and um, we both kind of. I think he really wanted to move. To L- back to LA. He grew up here and he was like, maybe we should move back to LA. I should move back to LA. Um, I wasn't so sure about it. So we're like, why don't we take a break? We were lucky enough to have um, a place where we could kind of keep our stuff and a little bit of a financial cushion. So we ended up just going to Europe for a couple months just to kind of like, I was like, I would really like to visit some wine regions. He was like, I would like to eat French food in France. Um, so we just went to um, France, Spain, and Northern Italy and just kind of like bummed around on a shoestring budget for a couple months. Um, which was a great experience. We got to, you know, meet some winemakers, which was really fun, and just eat really good food and relax. Um, we had both been kind of working straight through for so many years at that point. Um, and then we came back to the U.S. and decided, you know, we had kind of talked about it and thought, like, you know, he really wanted to open a restaurant. I was not so convinced that I wanted that. But we thought if we're ever going to have a chance to do it, L.A. probably there's a higher probability we can ha- make it happen in LA. You know, things have changed since then, but the, I think just the prices of real estate in New York and what it costs to operate a restaurant there were like, we're probably never going to have an opportunity here. But he thought in LA, maybe there's a possibility um, that it could it could happen. His family was here. He had more connections. Um, and 
he also that was right when um, Bouchon was opening in Beverly Hills, and he was like, "I really want to work for Thomas Keller. Like, I'm, let's can we move there, and I'll work at Bouchon, and let's f- kind of figure it out." And I really didn't want to move here. I was like, <laughs> "I love New York." Um, I sort of was like, you know, but I, in fairness to him, and also I thought, you know, I've lived here for for such a long time. Like, maybe it would be good to be exposed to something else. So I was like, "All right, I'll give it a year and a half. Like, let's go to L.A. see what happens." Um, and it took probably the full year and a half, like at the one year mark, if he, we had, t- we talked about it and I was like, I think I might want to consider going back to New York, um, is a hard adjustment for me, but I, it did grow on me. Now I can't even imagine moving back to New York. I feel like the first time I, I when I went to New York, I was in my twenties and just for fun. And every time I told somebody I was from Los Angeles, they were so mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was. I had that same. I shouldn't even admit this. Um, yeah, New Yorkers have a thing about LA. Like it's like kind of hate on it. Um, and now everyone's moving here. Totally. <laughs> so. Like, uh huh. You're from New York. Yeah. Uh-huh. And now people tell me that you know everyone who I get a lot of people coming into the restaurant who are telling me they're from New York. I'm like everybody's going to come out here eventually. Um, but yeah, I think you know I, the lifestyle is just so different. Um, I think also. It's, um, you know, I never had really driven a car as an adult, so that was really hard. I'm still a terrible driver. Um, I, in New York, it's just like everything is just kind of easier to access in some ways. Um, and I feel like L.A., you have to kind of dig, like kind of find your places and find your people, where I think in New York it was a little... I had lived there for a long time, too, which was part of it, but also it's just like everything is kind of out on the street as opposed to here. I think you do have to kind of figure things out a little bit more, um, but... L.A. has grown on, really grown on me. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> uh, so you kind of, you know, moved out here with the just, you know, wanted to get a little change. And I'm assuming also because you love the guy and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That was part, that was part of it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the first year, year and a half was just kind of rough. What were, what were you doing here? So I took a job um, at a restaurant called BLD, which was owned by Amy and Neil Frazier. Mm-hmm. Um, we were living literally across the street. So I was like, this is great. I don't have to drive. I was in Mid-City on, yeah. on Beverly, kind of mm-hmm. close to Fairfax. Um, but I could walk there in like two minutes, which was amazing. Um, and took a job there as a floor manager and eventually became the assistant general manager. Um, and they also let, um, after I'd been there for a few months, let me take over the wine list, which was cool. Um, that was kind of really fun for me as well. And I think that was also really pivotal. It was not a wine-focused restaurant. Um, it was very much a brunch destination. Di- you know, we did have a great dinner menu, but it really was people went for brunch. So we weren't selling a ton of wine, and the list was very small, but it was just sort of the first opportunity for me to kind of start to – um, I think when I had been doing this list in New York, I didn't know what I was doing. And it was like throwing darts at, a, at the wall and figuring out like, oh, this tastes good. Let's put it on. But I felt at that point I actually had some more knowledge. So I was able to kind of make more intentional decisions and even just getting then to meet the different, you know, wine importers and taste with reps and go to tastings and meet other people doing wine stuff in L.A. Um, was really exciting for me to kind of get exposed to that world as someone in a, with a little bit of responsibility uh, and decision making power. Okay, and from there? So from there, it's, it's all such a blur. Um, from there, I, oh, so I was there for a couple of years, and then at, we kind of got a little ambitious, and we're like, all right, we're going to open this restaurant. We, we were going to open a French restaurant. Um, okay. That was our plan. <laughs> um, and we're like, we're going to do this. I'm like, you know, lifestyle of a restaurant manager working 12, 14 hours a day. I'm like, there's no way. So I was like, I'm going to maybe, we, I really felt like I needed some, just a little bit more work-life balance, 
to be able to kind of think through this restaurant opening process. So I decided to take a job in retail. I had run into Jill Bernheimer, who runs, who owns Domain LA. I knew her kind of socially through tastings, and I had run into her somewhere, and she was like, if you ever want a job, let me know. And I was like, you know, that seems, this would be a good time for that, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I thought I could still be exposed to really great wine. I could see a different side of the, the business, the beverage industry. I'd never worked retail before, um, but I also won't have to work. You know, my schedule will be a lot easier and I won't be taking work home with me. I'll be an hourly employee, clock in, clock out, like, and it'll kind of free up some mental bandwidth to start thinking about our own project. Um, so I ended up taking a job there just kind of part-time. I started as part-time and ended up, I want to say when I was there for, I was there for several years, um, kind of in different, different capacities. But yeah, I was there for a few years um, doing retail. And, you know, once again, like tasting a lot. Um, one of my coworkers at the time was Catherine Coker, who was in the process of opening Esther's Wine Bar. So it was really cool to have someone who was kind of also trying to figure out some of the same, you know, same things that I was. She was farther along in the process. I, we were just like writing out dreams on a piece of paper at that point. But uh, it was good. It was like really a great place for me to be in both in terms of exposure to wine and learning kind of what that retail side looked like and also in just giving myself a little bit of space to, to start figuring out next steps. Okay. So when was the moment that the French restaurant dream started morphing into what obviously is not a French restaurant? I mean, it has French influence. Yeah. yeah. Um, how did this happen? Well, at so complicated. My, uh, so my partner had been working at Bouchon and his chef there ended up going to work um, as sort of like the corporate chef for a restaurant group called Sprout um, that owns many restaurants around the city. And he had been saying to Charles, like, hey, you should come open a restaurant with us. Mm. Um, And they were the ones who originally were like, what do you think about doing something Japanese? And we were sort of talking about it. And I think at that point, he and I had also kind of started thinking about it, too, where, you know, I... I really love eating Japanese food. I love izakaya. I love going drinking sake. We used to do it all the time in New York. And when we moved to L.A., there were there were places to go. But I felt like there weren't as many places to drink sake as I had thought there would be. Because um, there is, you know, such a, a robust kind of Japanese and Japanese-American community here. Um, and I found like, oh, I wonder, you know, I wish there were more places to go and drink lots of different kinds of sake. We would go to like Torrance quite often. But I was like, there's kind of, you know, there's little Tokyo. There's Sautel. Um but I think we we're just kind of thinking maybe there's room for this. Like if we want to kind of present a, a slightly different style of Japanese restaurant. Um, and it just kind of clicked. I think we had been working on this French concept and I think we had some ideas and I think we still we still talk about it. But um, I think this for us felt like, oh, this actually makes sense for like, um, I think we can offer something unique here. I think is kind of what we realized as we started playing, kind of playing it out in our heads. And this was through the Sprout group. They had kind of planted the seed. And then from there, I think we just kind of, as we started working it through, we started thinking this actually really does make sense for us. Yeah. And they have some pretty incredible restaurants. I mean, they're yeah. a little legendary in Los Angeles. I mean, they it's so hard to make money at a restaurant. All of them <laughs> seem to do really well. So Yeah, they have quite a bit of talent. Um, and we're, we feel very lucky to be working with them. Yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> uh, okay, so... Maybe we lost this somewhere. When did you like start learning about sake? Like, because <laughs> you know so much. Like, I, I, I had. I mean, the wine, and you, you really were following that journey. I mean, so when did this happen? Is this like when Subaki opened, or before that, or? 
what happened? I mean, I had been working all those years in New York, so mm-hmm. I think I, I, I had an understanding. Like, I understood the process. I understood. I had, like, an, an understanding of styles and major producers. You know, I, really, like, a lot of the... A lot has changed in the sake landscape since then, but I think in terms of, like, you know, having a baseline education, I had that just from working with it. Um, and then, yeah, when we opened Subaki, it was sort of like, all right, I'm going to write a sake list for the first time and just tasted a bunch of stuff and, I don't know, just kind of did it as I went, I guess. Like, it was sort of like, oh, if something comes up in this that I don't understand, I'm going to look it up or... You know, I'm going to talk to my importers, talk to, you know, when the brewers would come visit, talk to them. We would go to Japan and try to visit breweries as well to sort of see the process. But I would say it's kind of, it was kind of just a gradual process, come, you know, going into opening Tsubaki with this kind of baseline and then just building on it from there. I've never taken any class, like formal classes. Yeah. Is there like a sake equivalent to a sommelier? There is. Um, the W set actually offers a, a really great sake class that's very... Um, What's the word? It's well respected, and I think it's it's pretty rigorous. Um, there is you can be what's called a kikizakeshi, which is basically just you know like a sake professional, you know. And in English, they there is a, st- a status called sake samurai, which is if you've completed like you know a certain level of education, you can get. Um, but I've done embarrassingly, I've done none of it. <laughs> um, I have, I've thought about it. Like at some point, I probably should get some get some sake education formally. Um, but yeah, I just sort of was, you know, reading books and tasting and talking to people and trying to kind of muddle through on my own. Yeah, who doesn't want to be a sake samurai? <laughs> that's a pretty great title. <laughs> uh, I feel like that's how I wake up every time I go to. Uh, oh no, <laughs> Subaki or no, no. Oh, I just got beat up by a sake samurai. Uh, so. Really quickly, what does tsubaki mean, by the way? So tsubaki is a type of tree, um, mm-hmm. the camellia tree. Um, there's a ton of them in Japan, obviously, but there's so many in L.A. If you go to, like, the Huntington Gardens, there's a whole tsubaki section. Um, they were A lot of them were brought over from Japan. They're really beautiful flowers. They're called the Rose of Winter. The oil from the the seed of the tsubaki tree also is what chefs will use to keep their knives from rusting. You can buy like tsubaki oil. Mm-hmm. You can also buy it, you can put it on your hair. Um, it's a beauty product as well. Um, but, you know, we had, we had took us forever to figure out a name and we were running it by our English-speaking friends and our Japanese-speaking friends because we would find one that we thought we liked and then our Americans would be like, that's terrible or vice versa. The Japanese people would be like, you can't call it that. That's awful. So it really took us forever and this was the first name where everyone's like, okay, that works. Tsubaki. Yeah, Tsubaki. <laughs> and... How was it this this opening this restaurant with your partner and you know I mean I I can only remember it being successful I don't know that and that spot's tough because there was a lot of restaurants that kind of went in there and failed and you know so sometimes you think like a place might be cursed or something and, and I can only think of you guys as successful but were there moments Yeah it was kind of a nightmare <laughs> it was horrible <laughs> I'm going to be candid. Um, it was really, really hard. It was hard. Um, we didn't have very much money and we didn't have very much staff and we didn't know what we were doing. You know, we had both been part of the opening team at this restaurant in New York, but, you know, we had been pieces of a really big team. We were not the principals um, and that team had much deeper pockets and, you know, resources that we did not have. So we we were totally unprepared, I would say. Um, we were... 
it's all, this I look back and I'm like I've blacked out pieces of periods of moment, this period of my life because I think it was just so hard um, and nobody knew who we were you know like we did we weren't famous chefs or you know f- beverage people um, you know we got a little bit of press in the beginning but yeah that we were in this weird you know kind of pocket in Echo Park there's not a ton of foot traffic there's the parking can be tricky um, there's you know it's not like we're in like you know an area where it's uh, we're just going to get a lot of kind of people just walking in. It's sort of you do have to make it a destination. We get a lot of neighbors now as well. And we've always had great support from the neighborhood. But, yeah, it was there were days when we would not see very many people coming through the door. Um, we were just working all the time trying to kind of figure it out. It was uh, it was a huge, a huge challenge. I was worried that nobody was going to want to drink sake. Like, you know, are people going to want these these less famous labels that we were pouring you know we intentionally decided not to serve the kind of really famous brands that I think are maybe more familiar which are delicious and very well made but they're I sort of thought like you know there's plenty of places to drink dasai or hakkaisan or kikusi like maybe we can like offer different things and you know have our own kind of you know personality Um, but I was a lot of my importers were like you're crazy you know like you need to have these brands on your menu if you want people to order so yeah it was really it was very very stressful (laughs) that first year we opened in February of 2017 I would say all of 2017 was very very hard yeah I feel for you (laughs) Uh, so was there a moment that you know things really changed or did it just gradually get easier and you became more popular I think the real, the first part of the turning point for us was um, Life and Time did a a TV series called The Migrant Kitchen. Uh, Life and Time is this really wonderful kind of media outlet that focuses on restaurants and culinary professionals um, and kind of food culture. And they were they did the series called The Migrant Kitchen, where they were focusing each episode in the series on a different cuisine and culture in LA. So they had done an ex- an episode about Mexico. They had done, I believe, an episode about um, Filipino cuisine. And then they had approached us looking to do a Japan episode or, you know, Japanese uh, Japanese restaurant in LA, I guess, is basically kind of what we were representing, a uh, Japanese-American chef. And that filmed, we were filming that like the first or second month we were open. We were very lucky that they asked us to do it. So it had filmed early on and then it aired right around Thanksgiving of 2017, and that was really huge for us. It was absolutely beautifully done. Um, we started seeing a lot of people coming in and saying, I saw life, I saw Migrant Kitchen, that's why we're here. Um, it was really, we saw a lot of uh, kind of members of the Japanese-American community coming in, which was very cool. Um, and yeah, I think that really that really helped us. I, I, tell, I still see some of the folks who are involved in that, and I tell them that, you know, you saved our restaurant. They really did. Um, yeah. It was very hard. Um, and then after that, you know, we start. I believe we got an LA Weekly review when back when Besha Rodell was the critic, um, and she gave us a very nice review, so that helped. Um, and then Jonathan Gold had actually come in a couple of times, and he they had t- done a photo shoot for LA Times review for us, and we were like waiting and waiting and waiting, and nothing happened. And then the news came out that he had passed away. So it was. True. I mean, our piece of that story is by far the less tragic piece. Um, it was, you know, really obviously a very sad thing for the city and for everyone who knew him. He was even we only met him briefly and I was so nervous. My hands were I, he ordered sake and he actually told me he's like the, the, the bottle I chose for him. He's like, oh, I actually keep a bottle of this in my fridge, which I thought was very cool. Um, but like my hand was shaking. I was like it's like meeting, you know, food royalty. But he was just such a lovely person to chat with and so genuinely excited about 
what we were doing and the food and the beverage. And I don't know, it was, um, the whole thing was just so sad. Yeah, (laughs) tragic. And yeah, he's such a huge champion for Asian food in general, you know. Yeah, I just got the sense that he like just really, I felt like oftentimes people didn't understand what we were trying to do. I don't know if I still felt like we are. (laughs) (laughs) We always say we're in LA Izakaya because we're not trying to say that we are I don't use the word traditional. I don't use the word authentic. I mean, I'm not Japanese. That's not my place to do anyway. And Charles doesn't do that either. He says, you know, a lot of the dishes are inspired by food his mom cooked. So it's like, you know, there is that influence. But, you know, we're in L.A. We're using L.A. products. We're not, you know, both of us are American. We're the, you know, we're not trying to pretend that we are in Japan with this Japanese lineage. It's sort of more like here's the framework of what an izakaya is and let's like have fun with it and translate it through LA. But I think people were oftentimes like, oh, are you fusion? Like there was, a, you know, this it's a, it was a difficult concept, I think, for people to understand um, in the beginning. And I when I was, you know, kind of chatting with Jonathan Gold, I was like, oh, it seems like he kind of gets what we're trying to do here. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I mean, I really do genuinely love the food there. And, and what I love is that, I mean, it, there is so much seas- seasonality um, in the menu. You But you always kind of have these three lines of staples. I, I I don't know. Even with like wine lists, I feel like, or wine shops or whatever, I, when people start, they have to change everything all the time. And that gets like, well, what if I really loved that? And mm-hmm. like, I want to come back for it. And I feel like you kind of always have these staples that I love and then always have some new stuff that, you know, is reflective of the time of year. So, I mean, I love that personally. It's fun. You know, the kitchen, my, my partner, he, um, it's tired of cooking the same things over and over. Sure. So there's a lot. He, the part of the reason the menu is pretty dynamic is because of him. Um, but yeah, I agree. Like, you know, there's certain things we'll never take off the menu. Mm-hmm. And then there's some stuff where it's like, oh, we, you know, we're going to change this. We're going to have a different salad in spring than we're going to have in fall because the vegetables are different. You totally. know, um, yeah. OK, so uh, fast forward, things are going better and you decide you want to torture yourself more <laughs> and open a second place next door. That is a Toto. Yes. Uh, so what was is. What was kind of the brainchild behind the Toto? So we opened the restaurant in February, February 2nd of 2017. And on February 4th, my landlord called me and said, hey, the hair salon next door is leaving. Do you want to take it over? So we were like in the middle of this opening, hadn't slept, no idea what was going on. And we were like, sure, we'll take it. Like, let's we'll figure something out. And then, you know, we had this very hard first year and the whole time we're like, why did we sign? Why did we agree to take this other space? What are we going to do with it? We had thought we one idea was like do a, a lunch concept with like rice bowls. Then we're like, no, there's the neighborhood is not a lunch neighborhood. We're like, should we do a wine thing over there? We talked about that. Um, but then we realized like one of our problems at Suvaki and this sounds it was a meant to help us kind of support the current the first restaurant was um it's a really small space and when we get busy there's kind of nowhere for anyone to wait and we would find people would try to walk in and we would say okay it'll be half an hour and they would just leave and go to the bar across the street like what if we had a place next door where it could kind of handle it could be its own place but could also handle some of the overflow like a bar would be really great that's kind of how that started um was like it would be nice to have a bar where we could ask people to hang out um and then they could come back and eat with us here and then as we were talking about it you know I was kind of watching what was happening at Tsubaki and I was realizing like people were really excited about sake. Like I hadn't expected it, but our our guests were really into it and they were remember they would come back and be like, I had last time I had this one that I really loved and they were remembering things about it and asking like, you know, to learn more and where can we kind of drink more sake. And I think that kind of gave me the confidence to say, like, okay, I think we can do a sake bar. Like I think <clears throat> there's enough interest. 
in this that, that could, it could support it and do a more casual menu, like kind of just fun drinking snacks and then really have this big sake program that, you know, kind of show the whole, keep it really, how do I say this, really deep broad program. Subaki mm. were so small, like the space itself is so small. There's just not a lot of room for refrigerators. Like we couldn't really, our list is limited by the size of our physical space. Whereas I'm like, we're going to build this, you know, we had to gut this hair salon. We're going to build it from scratch. Like we can build a, a restaurant that has the infrastructure to support this big sake program. And yeah, we just both got kind of excited about thinking possibilities about pushing sake a little further. I love it. I, um, I mean, I've always loved sake and, you know, being in beverage for a long time, have learned a little bit about it. But I, you know, you going to like Subaki and Ototo have turned me on to so many different styles, like that aged sake that I'm obsessed with <laughs> that you don't always have. It's just like this crazy umami taste that I just never even had before. And also, you know, um, I did an event with, um, you know, uh, Moon Bloom Sake and, and Chi, uh, Chi Shop and they paired cheese and sake together and it like was like like blew my mind um what do you i feel like people really need to expand their mind that you know obviously sake is great with sushi and asian food but what are some of your favorite pairings with sake outside of that i mean you, when you said cheese that's my number one to, i think it's the, the it's it's um a great aha moment for people i would say because it's easy but it's so transformative um you know sake itself has very high levels of glutamates, um, which are what give the give it the umami, that umami quality. Um, and some of the foods that have really high levels of glutamate, one of them happens to be cheese um, and also tomatoes, anchovies, mushrooms, which is why pizza is really wonderful with sake as well. Um, but with cheese, um, and there's also a good amount of lactic acid in sake as well. So it's kind of, they share... Um, in their chemical composition, there's some shared, there's some crossover there. So it's a really natural pairing, but it's not one that we think about because I don't think necessarily most of us associate Japan with cheese. You know, you think about what, eating, drinking wine with cheese, but to think about putting sake with it. But I really do think it often works better than wine in many cases. Um, sake has lower acidity levels. Um, it does still have acidity, but it's a little bit lower in acidity and you don't have to worry about tannin at all. So Places where wine has a hard time, sake can also be a really great match as well. Like things that we talk about as wine killers, like asparagus or artichokes. Like next time, try some sake with that for sure. Um, and then I always encourage everyone to just get a pizza, like get your favorite, you know, takeout pizza uh, and get a bottle of sake and try it at home because it really, um, it goes so well together. And it's it's such an, like a fun, unexpected thing. I know what I'm having for dinner tonight. <laughs> um, so just Quickly, I'd like to touch on some of the, you know, parallels and differences between wine and sake and more specifically, maybe the natural wine movement. Uh, I'm curious is, I mean, you know, you, you spoke to bigger brands and more boutique brands of sake, just like we have in wine. And we, you know, we'll call the grocery store wine or commercial wine and, you know, natural wine just can't be made in those quantities. Uh, and we know why, what the differences are. Is there differences of how sake is made, whether it's boutique? I mean, is there like natural sake versus like unnatural sake? There's, so sake is a, it requires intervention to make it, I guess. And that's, I think, why it's, you will see some brands labeling sake with the word natural. You'll see like shizenshu. Um, often that has to do more with how the rice is grown as opposed to how the, the process, um, because you really do need to do a lot to get 
sake as your finished product. You need to polish the rice. You need to, um, oftentimes you're adding yeast, although there are some uh, sakes that are being brewed um, with native yeast. Um, but I would say most of the time that's not the case. You're pasteurizing most of the time. Like there's a lot of places where it's just a, the process kind of takes over. Um, there are a lot of sakes now, however, that we are seeing that are, I, I don't know if it's inspired by natural wine. I There's a piece of me that thinks that it's possible um, that these brewers, because I think the brewers are paying attention to what's happening in the wine movement um, and are making more sakes that are less, have less intervention. So a style is called muroka namagenshu, which are not charcoal filtered, not pasteurized and not diluted. Um, so kind of less, less of the hand of the brewer in the process. Um, but I think the biggest difference is really between kind of craft sake and I would say maybe big kind of big corporate sake. I don't know what the, the, the hot sake that you see in a dispenser. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so in Japanese, it's jizake, means craft sake. Um, so normally it's smaller, more regional, um, you know, just as you said, kind of smaller production. Um, sometimes brewers are growing their own rice. Sometimes they aren't. There's not, you know, strict definitions Um as I think, you know, with natural wine, I think oftentimes there can be room for interpretation on definitions as well. Um, but what we really look for is, first question is, does the sake taste good is really what I'm asking myself. Um, and then, yes, like, who, how is this being made? You know, who are the people behind it? Kind of what's the story? And then, you know, what does the production actually look like? You know, there are some breweries that we work with that are super automated where everything is done, you know, temperature control to the tenth of a degree. And there's tons of modern equipment. And some brewers do everything in old wood and don't test anything and are just going off of vibes <laughs> or experience, I should say, maybe not vibes. That feels a little dismissive. But um, like who are just, you know, who are not quite as, you know, kind of um, interested in the technology. But it really is sort of more, you know, philosophically, what are they trying to say with the sake? Um, and does it is it going to fit in our list, I guess? Um, I don't have a strict kind of dogmatic definition of what's going to make it onto the list or not. Speaking to the people behind the sake, um, I, I mean, I always knew that there weren't a lot of women in sake. But when I first opened Vinovore, and obviously we're all women winemakers and I wanted to carry sake, so I'm going to look for all female tojis. And I was, like, stunned to find out how little there are. I mean, I know the ratio to women winemakers to male winemakers is pretty staggering. But, you know, I, I don't know the exact statistics now. But when I was looking, it was, like, just around 20 uh, tojis in all the world and all the sake yeah. houses were women. It, I think the number has gone up. But, yes, it is still quite small. Um, for many, many years, women were not allowed to make sake. Um, I've heard a few different explanations for this. Um, one of them, I think the most logical one is that sake brewing is very physical work. And there was sort of this um, supposition that women were not strong enough to do it. It is, you know, a lot of lifting and hosing things down and cleaning and carrying ba huge bags of rice around. So I think women were probably pushed out of the process for that reason. There's some, you know, We've heard reasons given that women's hormones will uh, the pH will affect the pH balance of the you know it's going to affect the fermentation um, for many reasons though. But women were kind of kept out of the brewery. That is you know that is changing, and there are a lot more women in the industry now. And there's kind of groups of women, female tojis who are working together and kind of trying to kind of make more of an you know build up um, the number of women working in the industry. And I'm I'm also seeing now a lot of brewer maybe a lot is not the right word, but more breweries who are putting women, young women at the head um, of their brewing process, of their brewing, you know, promoting them to toji, 
at a very young age. Um, and I do think part of that is sake has an image problem in Japan. And it's trying, they're trying to figure out a way to appeal to younger drinkers and to appeal to women who don't really, from a market share perspective, are not drinking a lot of sake. Um, so I think a lot of brewers are saying maybe we should have young women making sake because they know what young women want to drink. Um, so it, I do think it is changing. But yes, it is still a very, very small, small number of women in, in charge. Yeah, I recently talked to a sake producer and they mentioned that, that there was a lot of um, these breweries just closing and, and going out of business. And and they were saying that it's um, the popularity of sake is really declining in Japan, even though it's growing here in the United States. It's still, you know, these houses are just going away and the, the, the sons aren't interested in, yeah. in carrying on the tradition. And, and usually it is kind of a traditional family affair and some of the daughters are being allowed. Uh, why do you think um, sake is losing its popularity in Japan? Do you think natural wine, whiskey? I mean, it's just other beverages. I do think it's other beverages. It's just kind of not that cool. Like, it's sort of like, oh, that's what my parents drank. That's what my grandparents drank. Um, I do think it has just, there's sort of, it's not hip. Um, I think wine is very fashionable in Japan. I think shochu is huge, which we don't really see much shochu culture over here. Um, but that's what a lot of people are. That's what like my friends are drinking um, when we go out there drinking shochu. And that is it's Korean. It's no. not. It's a distilled. It's Japan's. It's an indigenous distilled spirit. It it's similar. The Chinese characters used to write shochu just mean like fired alcohol. So it means distilled alcohol. Okay. And soju, I'm assuming, has the same etymology, which is why they sound the same. Mm. But they are, um, they're different. Shochu, honkak shochu, um, which is the, the, the good stuff, um, is distilled only once. And it's made from a whole bunch of different base ingredients like sweet potato or rice or barley. We have some made with shiso. Um, so it really keeps the character of the base ingredient where... And I do not know much about Korean soju, but my understanding is it's distilled multiple times like vodka. So it's a very clean product that doesn't show the origin base mm. ingredient as much. Um, and then there are shochus that are, are multiple distilled that are mixed into cocktails called chuhai, which is super popular. And then, of course, like cocktail culture is big in Japan, too. I, I just really think it's sort of... It just seems like it's it's also a complicated subject for Japanese people, too. Like, it's not, you know, you don't, you're not born knowing, you know, how to read a sake label. Um, so looking at a, at a long sake list can be hard for, you know, for anyone. So I think sometimes it's easier just to say, okay, I'll just have a beer instead or let me have a shochu because I know the brand. Um, I think that's on the consumer side. And then I think on the production side, yeah, a lot of places, you know, it's really hard work. It's... Uh, as you said, they are family, oftentimes passed down in the same family for many generations. And now kids are saying, like, I don't want to live in the middle of nowhere and make sake. <laughs> like, I want to move to Tokyo or Osaka. And, like, it's just, it's not glamorous, I guess. Um, but, yeah, the, the, I think a lot of breweries are now looking to the export market as a possibility for the future of sake because there is a growing interest abroad Um not just in the U.S., but I think also in Europe as well, There is they are seeing more of an interest in sake. Um, so I think a lot of breweries are now trying to figure out, like, okay, how do we get this in the glasses of, of Americans and other people outside of Japan? And do you think that this is going to speak to the future of sake? I think it has to be part of it, um, and it should. I mean, I don't see why not. I think, um, as we were just talking about with cheese, I— I really wish more people would think of sake as a more as a versatile beverage and not just kind of pigeonhole it that it has to go with with sushi or Japanese food because you know not everyone is cooking Japanese food at home 
um, or going out to eat Japanese food all the time. But you look at, you know, everyone is very comfortable drinking wine with Thai food. Like, why can't we drink sake with Mexican food? Or, you know, like there's there's really no reason. Um, and it does go really well together. It's such a versatile beverage. So I, I really hope that I think that that could be a piece of the future is to see sake kind of the possibilities for drinking sake. There's so many. Um, and I think for non-Japanese restaurants to start pouring it. I do have some people coming in who work in other restaurants who are interested or asking me, you know, I want to put a couple sakes on my list. Like, so I think the more that happens, the better for the industry as well um, to kind of get it out of this box that it has to be consumed with Japanese food. I would love that because I actually have a hard time ordering wine at a restaurant, <laughs> so I usually have a cocktail, but if it's a beer and wine restaurant and they had sake on the menu, I would go for that for sure. Uh, so really quickly, I just a brief question about serving sake because, you know, we are trying to expand people's minds on it. Um, you know, the first time I ever had sake, and I think most people, the first time they ever had sake was the hot sake. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, then you have like you get like a really cold sake in that little blue bottle that would maybe be the next step. <laughs> uh, and I know you serve your sakes at the restaurant in varying temperatures. What decides whether a sake should be like room temp, warm, cold? It's just kind of the style of the sake, and also I would say the weather. I, the, those are the two things. Like right now, it's. I'm going to say cold in L.A. We're in the 50s, so we're pouring a lot more things at room temp or warm. There are some sakes that I think of as like three temp sakes. They're great chilled room temperature or warm. Some sakes really need to kind of be one or the other. Um, Generally speaking, more aromatic styles are better cold. Um, You know, things that are very floral, very fruity, more delicate aromatics. You you know, when you warm those up, those are going to evaporate pretty quickly, those like kind of aromatic compounds. So you kind of lose what makes those sakes charming. Um, So I tend to prefer those cold. Any sake, you know, I think about when I'm tasting the sake, I think about like, what is, what's the point of this sake? If the point of the sake is it's like crisp and clean and refreshing, I'm going to serve it cold because that's going to emphasize that quality. Whereas if I taste a sake that's like really rich and savory, um, I think, okay, that's, you know, that this will taste delicious, you know, warmed up a little bit. So it's just kind of oftentimes a gut feeling, but it's sort of like, what is the, what is the, the charming piece of this experience? And like, how can we emphasize that with temperature? Um, just like I think with wine, you know, like you're going to drink your like, you know, your really, really racy, crisp, you know, muscadet, very, very cold. And then you might drink your like kind of full bodied red wine, like a little bit warmer temperature because it's going to emphasize what we like about that more, if that makes sense. It's a hard, a lot of it's just going on gut, I would say, but. All right, go with your gut. I like it. Uh, well, I could talk to you all day long, <laughs> but uh, there's things to do. Uh, I know uh, in the past, you and I have had conversations that were both kind of like, you know, these kind of like serial entrepreneurs and can't <laughs> stop and won't stop and just, you know, love to torture ourselves with more and more things to do. So uh, before we stop talking, I'd love to know what's next. Uh, <laughs> I've I've been saying for years, never again when it comes to restaurants, but um, we're thinking about maybe doing something else um, here in L.A. Nothing nothing official or concrete, but, you know, I think we do have some other stuff that we'd like to say. Um, I don't think we have any really fully formed plans yet, um, but I think probably to stay in restaurants. We've tossed around the idea of doing some retail. We do do some sake retail out of the bar, out of Ototo, but I think... 
I don't know, we have that kind of that gene that for whatever reason makes this <laughs> makes restaurant work appealing. So I think we're uh, we're thinking about maybe doing something else slightly, slightly different um, from what we've got now. But uh, stay tuned. OK, <laughs> I will. I will be there uh, with bells on. Uh, well, thank you so much for talking with me, Courtney. This has been lovely and I can't wait to uh, eat some some subaki food and, and drink some sake with you soon. Thank you so much. All right. Cheers. Thank you.